invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. Again, not a traditional Christmas or Advent passage, but, uh, but as I've, I've told Danny throughout the last couple of weeks, I feel like every passage is both a, a Christmas and an Easter passage. And so... Um, and, and hopefully those of you that are with us every week know that that's true. We, we see every uh, passage of God's Word showing us Christ in His incarnation and even in His death and in His resurrection. He is in and through all of it. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through uh, 13. Last time we were here last week, we saw from the book of Ephesians how the promise of peace and the promise of a prince of peace is fulfilled in Jesus' birth in His sinless life, in His death on the cross for our sin, and even in His resurrection. The peace that Jesus brings, we saw, is both vertical, that is, it's between us and God as Jesus overcomes and pays for our sin, our sin which creates hostility between us and our Creator. The peace that Jesus brings is also horizontal, as Jesus brings forgiven sinners to a place of peace with one another where hatred and prejudice can be repented of and forgiven and where natural enemies can then become family like we have in this family of faith here. But this week, as we work through the promise of Christmas this Advent season, we turn our attention to the promise of hope at Christmas. Hope is, as one dictionary says, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all, wrote Emily Dickinson. South African Anglican Bishop Desmond Tutu says that hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. Hope for the future, it can be said, is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's what gets us through hard days. Hope is what fuels addicts in recovery. Hope is the currency of political campaigns. These are all fine definitions. These are all fine usages of this word hope. These are okay ways to use and think about hope. But in a biblical sense, we do well to see this morning from the word of God what real hope is. Real hope is not just an optimistic longing for a better day or a different future. In Scripture, hope is a person. Hope is a real destination, not a thing that, not a figment of our imagination, not a thing that's just kind of out there on the on the horizon as a possibility. Hope is a reality, and at Christmas, the promise of hope from God is fulfilled and made real in Christ. At the birth of Jesus, hope becomes reality—something you can touch, something you can see. A reality that's intended for and available to all sorts of people. And we're going to see that in the text this morning. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Church this morning, it's my hope that we would see the promise of hope at Christmas 
three different ways. First, in verse 8, the promise of hope at Christmas is for people who are near to God. The promise of hope at Christmas is for people who are near to God. In the pages of Scripture, very often this concept appears of those being near to God. We, we saw it even last week in Ephesians 2, where Paul talks about those who are near and those who are far. When it occurs, though, it's usually a reference to the Jews, that is, ethnic Hebrews from the lineage of Abraham, who were the recipients of God's revealed word and his law. They were the people to whom God spoke through his prophets. They were the people who received what we know as the Old Testament. In fact, we saw the same terminology here used by Paul in Ephesians 2, talking about Jews being those who are near to God. But here again, we see that the promises of Christmas are first for the Jews, even here in Romans 15, 8. Those who by their faith and by their exposure to the spoken and the written word of God were spiritually near to him. Now, while Paul doesn't use this word hope in verse 8, it's most certainly present in this idea of promises that are confirmed to the fathers of Judaism, promises confirmed to the patriarchs. And so as we read that verse 8, I tell you that Christ came, became a servant, to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. There are two questions that arise as we read that verse. First, who are the fathers? Who are the patriarchs? These fathers of the faith are Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob, who would later have his name changed to Israel. Israel would have 12 sons, and there you have the tribes of Israel. Abraham was the one whom God called to leave his homeland, the land of Ur, Right? And go to a new place, a place with strangers, a place that he did not know, a place that God would show to him. It was to Abraham that God promised in Genesis 22, verses 17 and following, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And to Abraham, it was... To him that God gave the physical sign of circumcision to be a perpetual physical reminder and sign to Abraham of this promise. Right? A down payment, of you will, if you will, of the promise. So what was the promise? Well, we just saw it briefly in Genesis twenty two seventeen, right? That we've just seen there that, that simply again for Abraham's trust, because of his trust and for his faith in God's promise, God would give Abraham innumerable offspring. And that, and that also... The nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. The problem, though, for Abraham was that while he had two sons in his lifetime, only one of them, Isaac, was legitimate and a legitimate heir to the promise. He was the only son of his wife, Sarah. Isaac was born when Abraham was, get this, 100 years old. And at Abraham's death, 75 years later, he had only one grandson. It hardly seems... At 175 years old, at his death, that God was very faithful to the promise of many descendants in Abraham's life. But Abraham knew better. Abraham believed better. Abraham hoped better. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, about Abraham, he says, In hope he believed against hope. That is to say, when there was no good reason to have hope at all for any sort of future, Abraham hoped anyway. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which, by the way, at 100 years old, was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. That's what Paul says. Paul says, 
His body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. It was Abraham's hope. It was his sure expectation and trust that God would fulfill his promise for which this father of faith is revered here in Romans. At the birth of Jesus, then, the hope of that promise becomes real. At Christmas, Abraham's hope gets personal and takes on flesh as the Son of God is born as a human child in Bethlehem. Because, church, there is no greater blessing to any human being, Jew or Gentile, than to be forgiven of sin and to have eternal life with God our Creator. And because it is Jesus who was a Jew in the lineage of Abraham who makes forgiveness and eternal life possible, the fullness of the promise to Abraham is confirmed most perfectly in Jesus. But in the Old Testament, there's not just one promise, not just one promise to the Jews, but several, several promises with fulfillments hoped for, not just by Abraham, but by his innumerable descendants. And so at his birth, Jesus fulfills the hope of several of these promises. First, even going back to before Abraham, Genesis chapter 2, 15, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, 15, after the fall, after uh, Adam and Eve had eaten that forbidden fruit and sin had entered the world. God gives a promise to to Eve and, and also to the serpent who deceived her. He says to Eve that her offspring shall crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus at his birth fulfills the promise of that serpent crusher. He is the one who will crush the head of sin and Satan and death in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, as we saw in Genesis 22. But he's also the fulfillment of the promise that God gave through Moses to his people Israel in Deuteronomy 18, 18, that God would raise up a prophet for them from among them, uh, from among their brothers. And he would put his words in his mouth. And he would speak to the people and they would listen to all that, they, that he would command them. We know that at his birth, Jesus becomes and, and is the better high priest who is acquainted with our sufferings. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus, the Son of God who takes on flesh, fulfills the promise of a priest who will know our sufferings even better than the human priests of Israel. He's also the permanent sacrifice for sin. We read that in Hebrews 9 and in Numbers 19, that even in the Old Testament, there's this practice of of slaughtering, of killing animals for the atonement, for the forgiveness of your sin. Jesus, as a human being, as God in the flesh, the greater, dying for the lesser on the cross, dying in our place, he who did not deserve to, so that we would have forgiveness. He's the better permanent sacrifice for sin. But he's also, and fulfills, the promise of the good shepherd. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God is chastising the wicked shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the spiritual leaders of the people of God for exploiting the sheep, for exploiting the people, for not caring for them, for not taking care of their needs, for not having compassion upon them. And says that he himself will send a shepherd in the line of David, that he himself will shepherd his people. And in John chapter 10, what does Jesus say to those who are listening? I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for sheep. More than that, he's also the king who reigns forever in the line of David, according to the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7. 
These are just a few. The Old Testament is full of promises about a Messiah, about a king who would come, who would be hope for Israel. And at the birth of Jesus, at Christmas, all of those promises are fulfilled. All of the, all of the hope for those things becomes real, takes on flesh with skin and a name. And so indeed, Paul can say rightly in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 20, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. I hope that we see in all of this the the goodness of God to his people. God doesn't merely give Israel, as they are waiting, one promise to hang on to for 1,500 years. No, he gives them several. The initial promise of a serpent crusher in Genesis 2.15 becomes clearer and clearer in the promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to Isaiah and through Ezekiel and so on. In this way, the, the many promises create a clearer and clearer picture of the first and most crucial promise, that of a serpent crusher, that God would save his people from their sin. All of the promises about Jesus in the Old Testament are not different promises that... that, that, that exploit or or display a different aspect of who he is, but they are promises that will flesh out more clearly who he will be when he comes and what he will do. And so Jesus of Nazareth, in him, these promises become reality. Jesus was born a Jew, as Paul says, a servant of the circumcision, to show and to prove that God is faithful and true to his promises, that God does not give promises flippantly, and neither does he forget the ones that he has made. But today we understand that the Jews are not the only ones who are near to God spiritually. As we saw last week in Ephesians, every person who trusts in Jesus in this hope personified is brought near to God. And so if you are of Jewish heritage and lineage... You have a very real hope fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Yeshua Mashiach, right? He is your Messiah for your people who has come. But if you're not a Jew today, raise your hand if you're not of Jewish lineage and heritage. Okay, look around. You're in good company, okay? If you're not from Jewish heritage today, by the death of Jesus in your place, you have the firm assurance that all God has promised to do, He will do and has done for you. This Christmas church, remember what God has done. As we remember the hope, as we look at the hope of the promise of hope at Christmas, remember what God has done. Rejoice then in the fulfillment of his promise. And as you rejoice, keep trusting Jesus, who is the promise made real. Interesting uh, uh, little tidbit that this has really captured sort of my uh, just my thinking over the last several days. Um, my uncle, not too long ago, received a mysterious letter uh, in the mail from France. I don't know anybody from France. Um, turns out it, it is uh, a person of his generation, uh, but on the other side, or, or uh, uh, a cousin from France, from the other side of the family, that's, uh, whose family stayed in France. That doesn't make any sense. Let me try to make that clear. In 1912, my grandfather's parents immigrated to the United States from France. But uh, they were not the only ones in their family. There's a brother or sister or whatever that stayed behind, and they had children as well. And so the Besson family uh, grew and expanded both in France and in the United States. And so one of the descendants on the French side sent a letter to one of the descendants on the American side with this genealogy. Right. And and with these stories of these people in these in this genealogy, one of which I find most fascinating is that 
The, um, so in 1912, I think in November of 1912, my great-grandparents immigrated to the United States from France on a ship called the SS Finland, if I'm correct. Just seven months before they immigrated, in April of 1912, the SS Finland responded to a distress call of another ship in the Atlantic Ocean called the Titanic. So my great-grandparents immigrated to the United States on a ship that responded to the, to the Titanic's distress call in 1912. I think that's pretty cool. Right. And lots of you probably have stories like that. Right. Stories of 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 ancestors who immigrated to the United States. Right. For the hope of a better future, hope of a better life. Right. Hope of of something different than what their home country had brought them. And so we who maybe don't have those stories or don't know those stories, when we hear them from other people, we can appreciate those stories. Like, yeah, that's a cool story. You know, that's cool. Steve and your great grandparents came over on a boat. That's really neat. We can appreciate those stories, but when you're but when you're in the family that owns the story, right? You can appreciate it all the more. It's not just like, oh, that's a neat story. It's like that's my story. How cool is that? So I'm going to tell that story forever for the rest of my life. It may not be true. I don't know, but I'm going to tell it. <laughs> but for those, catch this though. For those of us who are near to God in Christ, this is our story, not just one that we can appreciate. This is a story that we own. We're a part of this. What Christ has done for us in Christmas, becoming hope personified, that's our story. And so we, we do well at Christmas to remember that story, to rejoice in that story, and then to keep living faithfully, trusting Jesus in light of what we know God has done for us. The promise of hope at Christmas is for people who are near to God. But this is even better. The promise of hope at Christmas is for people who are far from God. Verses 9 through 12, in order that, Paul writes, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. It's one thing to say you've got hope when you're near to God. When you've seen his goodness when you've tasted His grace, when you've experienced His love and mercy, when you've been able to share that hope with other people who are near to God. It's one thing to say you have hope when you're near to Him, but it's another thing entirely when you are looking for hope and you are far from God. This much is true for the non-Jews that Paul is talking about here, for these Gentiles. In the days of the Old Testament, they were far from God. Unlike the Israelites, they didn't know a God who loved them. They didn't know a God who had made promises to them for their spiritual good. And because of the natural strife that existed between Jews and between Gentiles, it was all the more difficult for Gentiles to even want to draw near to God, knowing that they were going to experience conflict with the Jews. But the promise of Christmas as Paul shows us clearly here in Romans, was not just for those who are near, but in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, the promise of hope at Christmas was even for those who were far from God. In Paul's day, these these Gentiles were excluded from the community of Israel because of their ethnicity and because they did not know God. They didn't trust uh, and worship God the ways that the Jews did. Now, granted, a degree of that exclusion made some sense, right? God had called the Hebrews to be a holy people, to communicate and embody His holiness, His nature in the world, albeit imperfectly. 
He had called them to be set apart from the rest of the world and to display and to illustrate his holy nature and character in the way that they lived and the way that they treated others. So naturally, there's going to be a division, a difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. But God also always had a plan and a promise to bring non-Jews, to bring Gentiles, people from outside of Abraham's family, into the family of faith by the promise that was made to Abraham. And this is what Paul means when he says that the nations, the Greek word ethne, which means Gentiles, translated nations or Gentiles in different places. Same for the Hebrew word goyim, which is translated uh, either nations or Gentiles in either place, just people that are not Jews. Paul says the nations would glorify God for the mercy that God showed to them, to the nations, to the Gentiles. And then to prove that all of this was always God's plan, Paul cites from four important scriptures from the Old Testament. And we see these here. The Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, right? God's authoritative word to the Jews. These verses that point to God's plan to save Gentiles as well. To give the Gentiles hope in Christ as well. And so in verse 9, Paul quotes 2 Samuel twenty two fifty, which is also the same as Psalm eighteen forty nine. These here are the words of King David as he's rejoicing in the Lord's deliverance, from Israel, uh, deliverance of Israel from her enemies. But Paul interprets this psalm to be speaking especially of the praises of God that go out among the Gentiles and the nations because of his goodness to Israel. Because of God's goodness to his people, the nations will know who God is and praise him for it. In verse 10, Paul cites Deuteronomy chapter 32, 43. By the way, those of you that are reading out of the English Standard Version, uh, if you look at Deuteronomy 32, 43, you won't find the exact words that Paul uses here. It's going to be slightly different. Um, th- there is a, uh, a difference in, uh, in manuscripts that are used by the English Standard Version as opposed to most other versions. Um, they, they take a, a different manuscript and, uh, for the Hebrew passage of Deuteronomy 32, 43 and use that as their uh, one that they, uh, that they translate there. Uh, I'm going to be really humble here and say right, all of these are translations, okay? They're not the, the inerrant. Um, this is the inerrant word of God, but, um, but we're working from old, old manuscripts and trying to find the best ones. I think the ESV made a mistake there. So if you're reading from the KJV, the New King James Version, if you're reading from the NIV or the New Living Translation uh, or the New American Standard Version, you'll, you'll see that Romans 15, uh, 10 and Deuteronomy 32, 43 do match up. And if you want to know more about how we got the text that we have and why the ESV makes that choice, come see me later. You probably don't care about it, but please do come see me because I've enjoyed talking with Danny about this throughout the week. And Danny learned more about textual criticism than any sane person cares to know uh, this week because of me. But so in Deuteronomy, verse, verse 32, 43, we have this. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Deuteronomy is Moses' sort of farewell speech to the Israelites as he is about to die and they are about to go into the promised land. And here, towards the end of this farewell speech, Moses gives this final blessing and, and subsequent warning to the Gentiles as he's wrapping up his words to Israel. Though the Israelites are going into the land that God is going to give them, they are to welcome any person who repents of their sin and submits to the covenant promises that God has made with Israel. In this way, God intends and promises blessing to those Gentiles who trust in him. And that we see come true in the life of Rahab, the woman of harlotry in Joshua chapter 2. As she, as she uh, sort of acts as a traitor against her own people of Jericho and welcomes the, the Jewish spies in so that they can spy out the land of Jericho. She and her family are saved and become part of the family of Israel as a result of her actions. James chapter 2.25 reminds us of the same thing. 
And in Jeremiah 18 and in Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, we see God's promise to relent from disaster to people who repent of their sins, even Gentile people. In verse 11 of Romans 15, Paul himself recalls half of Psalm 117. We read it earlier. Psalm 117 is only two verses. And the first verse is this. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all you nations. Let the peoples extol him. Psalm 117 is a wonderful, short psalm that calls all nations and all peoples to praise the Lord for his steadfast love to all mankind. And then in verse 12, Paul reminds his readers of the prophet Isaiah, of his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. The context of Isaiah 11 is the prophecy concerning the gathering of the faithful remnant of Israel from among their dispersed destinations after they were conquered by Babylon. Uh, They would be gathered together to be ruled by the Messiah, by one king of Israel. This Davidic descendant will rule over all nations. That much is clear. But what perhaps is, is the most unexpected part of this verse, even that Paul quotes, is that even the Gentiles, the nations of the world, people who are not part of Israel, would hope in Israel's Messiah. This is certainly pointing to the inclusion of Gentiles in this messianic kingdom, in Christ's kingdom. Jesus, however, does not rule by means of war. He doesn't come with a sword killing people and establishing his physical kingdom. No, Jesus rules by his resurrection from the dead. Dying in our place, rising from death, the one enemy that not a one of us can defeat, he has done it. And his kingdom is a kingdom of the resurrection. And in it, both Jews and Gentiles are welcome as they trust in Jesus. He is the hope of the Gentiles. But what's the, what's the nature of this hope? What's the object of this hope? Is this just like a longing for a possible future? Put another way, what's the hope that Christ has fulfilled? And what is the hope that Christ offers at Christmas? Very specifically, this is the hope of real life. Real, abundant, spiritual life. Life that extends into eternity even after our physical bodies uh, die. Because the Son of God was born a human... And because he died to pay for our sins and was raised again, we can be born again into a right relationship, a right spiritual relationship with God through belief in Jesus. That's the gospel. Friend, if you're far from God today, know that. If you want to be right with him, trust Jesus. And what's more, as the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, we are born to a living hope. When we trust in Jesus, we are born again to a living hope, which is our own resurrection from the dead, like our kings, like our saviors, to live for eternity with him. The hope that awaits all who are far from God is a confident expectation and a confident anticipation, not of a possibility, but a real, physical, eternal life with your creator. If you are far from God today, know that there is hope to be made right with him. This Christmas, know that there is hope for you in Christ. It seems these days we look for hope in lots of places. We, we look for hope in relationships. We enter into a relationship with a significant other, hoping that they will make us feel a certain way or hoping that they will fulfill something in us. We look for hope in tradition, even especially at Christmas time. I'm going to go to church this once a year. And I'm going to hope that God will give me grace to make it back at Easter and then Christmas again next year. Which, by the way, we are open between Christmas and Easter. We look for hope in, in other spiritual kind of things, uh, leanings, uh, mindsets, things like karma, right? If I do enough good things, I, I hope that, that more good things will come my way, will overcome my bad things. We put hope in lots of stuff. 
Often we, we fail to look for hope in the right place, though. When you lose your keys, aren't they always in the last place that you look to find them? I mean, it just makes sense, right? It's just, you find them, that's the last place you look. You don't keep looking for your keys after you find them. But you look through every possible place in your house to find your keys that you can't find. And the last place you would think to look is the pla- last place that you look. And sure enough, there your keys are. In very much the same way, hope, hope is, is, is a lot like that. Finding hope is a lot like finding your lost keys. If you don't know where to look, you're not going to find it, right? And oftentimes we find hope in the last place that we look. Let me encourage you today to not let Christ be the last place that you look. If you need hope, if you're looking for hope, something to hold on to for the future, and not just a possibility but a reality, come to Christ today. Trust Jesus today. Find hope in him today. So the promise of hope at Christmas is for those who are near to God. It's for those who are far from God. And finally, in verse 13, the promise of hope at Christmas comes specifically, especially through belief in Jesus. In this final verse of our passage today, as Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Here Paul concludes this thought with a prayer for the Romans. It is first a prayer of confident blessing. Paul is not here asking for something whose likelihood is uncertain. Instead, he's praying for something that he knows God desires to give to his people. The blessing prayed for is that of abounding and even overflowing hope. But what is particularly interesting about this prayer that Paul gives at the end of Romans, uh, at the middle of Romans 15 and verse 13, is that it has a source, this hope has a means, and this hope has a guarantee. Let's look at these things. First, the source of hope. The source of hope is God the Father. Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. It is the Father, God the Father, that Paul has in view. The majority of times he uses that sort of generic word, God. And that much is true here in that it is the Father who is the giver of all good gifts. Even Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 7, 11, and in Luke chapter eleven thirteen, 13, when he says to those who are listening, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So God the Father is the source of hope. But then let us also look at the means of hope. That is the channel through which we receive this hope. Paul says God will give joy and peace to them in believing, by believing. That little clause, in believing, is probably better stu- understood as, uh, as a result of believing. Or those of you who might be reading of the New, Inter- New International Version this morning, it says, as you trust in Him. And so the means of receiving this hope is as the church believes, as we trust. But it's not just mere belief, mere trust in God or the idea of God, but the object of belief it is that secures our hope. The New International Version, again, does a really good job to show us in translating this verse, how, what is the object of our hope? The NIV says, as you trust in Him. Him, church, is Jesus. And this is the case all over the New Testament, time and time again, in the Gospels, in Paul's letters, in Peter's letters. The object of our faith, of our trust, of our belief is very nearly always, when when referred to in Scripture, Jesus Christ himself. God the Son who took on flesh at Christmas. Jesus is the means for receiving hope. It is only through him that we are made right with God and can have the hope that God the Father gives. But finally, look at the guarantee of this abundant hope. Paul says it is to happen in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, 
who is the third person of the triune God. He is not a divine force, this sort of like a Star Wars kind of thing that you can tap into or whatever, and there's a good side and a bad side. Like, that's not it at all, okay? The Holy Spirit is a real, is a divine person existing at the same time as the Father and the Son, fully God throughout all eternity with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, a helper. He indwells and fills the life of every believer in Jesus at the moment they fully trust Christ for salvation. How cool is that, by the way, that that a person of God lives in you when you trust in Jesus? Right. Don't Christian, don't forget the Holy Spirit and that he lives in you, dwells in you, has taken up residence in you through trust in Jesus. As Paul tells the Ephesians in uh, in Ephesians chapter one, verse 14, he says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. That is salvation, resurrection until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And here in Romans 15, 13, it is in the power of the same Holy Spirit that we abound and overflow in the confident expectation of our eternal life in Christ. Do you see what's going on here in, in just this one small verse? The whole of the Trinity, all three persons of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are intimately involved in the hope that is promised at Christmas. In the hope that is promised here. God the Father gives it. The Holy Spirit empowers it. And it is God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, born a baby in Bethlehem at Christmas, who would grow to live a life without sin and die as our substitute on the cross so that we might be at peace with God by trusting in Jesus. It is God's desire to give you confident expectation, hope of eternal life, hope of a right relationship with Him. But that only comes when we trust His Son, Jesus, and by no other way. And then when we do, when we do trust in Jesus, God doesn't leave us with nothing to hang on to in times of suffering and in times of pain. No, God does us one better by giving us his own Holy Spirit, the third person of God, to live in us as a down payment, as money in escrow for our eternal salvation, which is the very power of our hope. I hope you see the degree to which God gives and involves all of himself in this promise of hope this morning. I have been blown away by Romans 15, 13 this week and thinking about how all three persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, intimately involved in giving us hope. I hope you see how all of this hangs, especially though, on Jesus and on faith in him. It's one thing to say that God wants to give you hope. It's one thing to say that God wants to empower you to have hope. Lots of so-called Christian motivational speakers and writers hit on this all the time. There's a God who loves you. He wants to give you hope. He wants to empower you to have hope. So just believe in God. He'll give you hope. What they frequently leave out, and, and critically so, because it is inconvenient for them to leave it in, is that apart from Christ and what he does for us on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead, apart from faith in him and in only him, we don't have access to the Father who wants to give us hope. And we don't receive the Holy Spirit who empowers us to have hope. It's Christ who paves the way for us to have peace with God. It's Christ who has paid the penalty for our sin. It's in Jesus and only in Jesus that we have access to the Father. And only through Him that we can receive the down payment, the guarantee of our salvation, who is the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to hope. So that first Christmas, some 2,000 years ago, the only way to know true hope was born. A baby, fragile, frail, 
baby in a manger, laying on some hay, surrounded by stinky donkeys. And we who know and trust this Jesus, who grew from a baby into a man without sin, died in our place, was raised from the dead. We who trust in that Jesus have this hope. We celebrate the promise of God made true at Christmas when we look at the promise of hope fulfilled in Christ in Bethlehem. This Christmas, church, it's my prayer that we would worship the God who offers hope. That we'd worship the God who makes it accessible. That we would worship the God who empowers us to have hope abounding, overflowing, brimming over. This Christmas, today even, in a moment, we're going to have a time of response. We just sing song of worship. I pray that you would respond to God and what we've seen in his word this morning, Romans 15, these three ways. First, worship the Father because he's given us the gift of hope uh, in salvation in Jesus. Worship the Son for His birth, for His death, resurrection, to secure a hope that we don't deserve. And worship the Holy Spirit, who's not just a force, He's a person who lives in you as you trust in Jesus. Worship the Holy Spirit this morning for His help in your life, for His empowerment in your life to know and to hold on to the hope that is made real at Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, You are so good to us in Your Word.